Hello and welcome to the Human Body Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Stoll. Each week I speak with experts to learn the ins and outs of the human body. This podcast aims to bring forth informative conversations about why it is important to know the function of specific body parts, systems, and rhythms. We will also be covering common disorders and problematic conditions, as well as restorative treatments and procedures. I'm so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Today I have a very special guest with me whose name is Dr. Harry Leon Brooks. He is an orthopedic surgeon in Beverly Hills, Los Angeles and has been practicing for nearly 50 years. Dr. Brooks has a unique background as he was born in Cape Town, South Africa and received both his undergraduate and medical degrees um, from the University of Cape Town as well. Fun fact, one of his professors was Dr. Christian Barnard, who became world famous because he was the surgeon that performed the first heart transplant on a man named Louis Wyszkanski in 1967. Of course, Dr. Brooks is board certified by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, and he is affiliated with the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, the Olympia Medical Center, and the LAC-USC Medical Center. He's the real deal. In this episode, we are going to be focusing on the spine, and as the episode continues, we get deeper and deeper into the common disorders and procedures. It's a long one, and it is fantastic. And I'm sorry, one more thing, I know I'm talking your ear off, but halfway through the interview, you might notice that there is a loud sound in the background. Unfortunately, neither Dr. Brooks nor I noticed this sound right away or paid much, uh, too much attention to it, but the mics did pick it up. It lasts for uh, about 10 minutes or so, but I'm so sorry that we couldn't edit it out, and I hope that it's not too disturbing. Okay, hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. Ricks, it's wonderful to see you again, and I am so happy to interview you today. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. If I can be of any benefit to educate whoever's willing to listen to this podcast, I'd be very happy. Okay, let's begin by discussing the basic structure of the adult spine. What are the segments of the spine? The main segments of the spine are cervical, thoracic, and lumbar. And then there's an addition to the lumbar, which is called the sacrum. The sacrum is traditionally thought of as a vestige of the tail. So the sacrum is a separate bone, uh, and it is made up of various segments. So it has its own segments. And why are the segments categorized that way? So, in other words, what are the physical or mechanical differences between the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and sacral vertebrae? 
That's a good question. The different parts of the spine subserve different functions. The cervical spine is there to support the head. The thoracic spine is there to support the structures which are very vital to life, which include the heart and the lungs. And the lumbar spine is there to allow for us to move the trunk so that we can bend forward, bend backwards, rotate to the right, rotate to the left, and flex to the left and flex to the right. The sacrum is the, is the, is the back portion of the pelvis, and it's part of the pelvis which contains a lot of vital structures such as the uh, ovaries in females and the bladder. How many vertebrae are there in the spine? In the cervical spine, there are a total of seven vertebrae. In the thoracic spine, there are a total of 12 vertebrae. In the lumbar spine, in most instances, there are five vertebrae. But sometimes one of the vertebrae in the sacrum becomes part of the lumbar spine, which leads to six lumbar vertebrae and four sacral vertebrae. And sometimes one of the lower lumbar vertebrae becomes part of the sacrum, meaning that the lumbar spine has four vertebrae and the sacrum has six vertebrae. So if you total up the total number of segments, it is uh, 7 plus uh, 12 is 19 plus 5, which is 24, 29, and then there's the coccyx attached to the sacrum. Okay, very well put. Now, will you please go over what the vertebral discs are, what their functions are, maybe even touch upon uh, their texture and what they're made out of? The vertebral discs are there to prevent abnormal forces on the brain. And in order to allow for this function, the disc is made up of uh, two components. Inside the vertebral disc is called the nucleus pulposus. And that consists normally of jello-like material, particularly in young people. But from the age of 20 onwards, the water gets absorbed and the disc, the nucleus pulposus tends to dry out and we say it becomes desiccated. The outer layer of each individual disc is made up of what we call the annulus fibrosis. And the annulus fibrosis is a type of material which contains the jello. And the disc itself is attached to the vertebra above and the vertebra below to what we call the end plate. So each vertebra has an inferior end plate and a superior end plate. Now, in addition to the disc itself, there are ligaments which maintain the stability of the spine, and these ligaments are called the anterior longitudinal ligament and the posterior longitudinal ligament. 
The anterior longitudinal ligament is in front of the spine. The posterior longitudinal ligament is behind the vertebral body and behind the disc. Will you describe the spinal canal, the spinal cord, and the spinal nerves, please? And you can be as brief as you want. I know there are many layers within this region, so I don't want you to exhaust yourself. So the spinal canal is actually a canal and in, it contains the spinal cord up to the level of the first lumbar vertebra. Below the first lumbar vertebra, it ends and it, the spinal canal it contains the dural tube and that tube contains the ends of the nerves and within the within the dural tube itself which is contained within the spinal canal is an item called the corda equina and it's called corda equina because it looks like a horse's tail and the nerve endings look like a horse's tail and they are within the uh, canal in the dura in the lumbar spine from L1 to S1 there's a canal but there's no spinal cord however from the base of the brain at the level of the first cervical vertebra to the level of the first lumbar vertebra uh, is the spinal cord Okay, I'd like to go over a few things uh, very quickly for our listeners. First, the vertebrae are organized from top down. So, for example, when we speak of C1, that means we are talking about the cervical vertebrae. That is the highest vertebrae out of the cervical vertebrae region. And it is also the highest vertebrae in the spine. The C7 vertebrae is the last vertebrae in the cervical spine region, and it is located right on top of thoracic 1, or T1. This is the first thoracic vertebrae. L5 is the lowest vertebrae of the lumbar spine and the lowest overall vertebrae of the spine. Now, just to reiterate what you said, Dr. Brooks, the spinal canal contains the spinal cord from the C7 vertebrae to the L1 vertebrae. In other words, the spinal cord is located between the lowest vertebrae of the cervical spine and the highest vertebrae of the lumbar spine. And I'm really glad that you clarified this because I thought that the spinal cord really started at the base of the head and went to the lowest vertebrae of the back. Uh, you also mentioned that around the L1 vertebrae, the spinal cord ends, but we still have the continuation of the dural tube. Now, the dural tube is actually encased within the spinal cord and starts at the base of the head. Um, but the lumbar dural tube without the spinal cord contains the cauda equina, which are the groupings of nerve roots that connect to other parts of the body.
Thank you very, very much for explaining that so well. Um, I, I had no idea. Okay, moving on. Will you please explain what the meninges are? The meninges are a layer within the spinal canal which surround the spinal cord up to the level of L1 and which surround the dural tube from L1 downwards. The, the layer closest to the spinal cord is called the arachnoid. And the arachnoid is a very thin layer. And the other layer is called the dural tube. That is much thicker. Those are the two layers. Those are called the meninges. And these layers are continuous with the uh, right up to the brain. And they, the brain has two layers around it. One is called the arachnoid and the other is called the dura. The, the dura. Two spinal issues I would really love to talk to you about are herniated and bulging discs. Will you explain what this is and what the differences are between the two? A herniation implies that the contents of a particular item are with, have emerged through the containing layer. So when we talk about a herniated disc, it means that a portion of the nucleus pulposus has violated the annulus fibrosus and there is evidence of nuclear pulposus material outside the confines of the annulus fibrosus. A bulging disc means that there's no herniation of the nucleus pulposus through the annulus fibrosus, but the annulus fibrosus is very thin, and because it's very thin, it's unable to contain the nucleus pulposus, and the pressure within the substance of the nucleus pulposus pushes the annulus fibrosus backwards. And that's known as a bulging disc. So often the terms herniated disc and bulging disc are confused. But the true description of a herniated disc is the presence of nucleus pulposus outside the confines of the annulus fibrosus. What are the symptoms of herniated and bulging discs? Are they the same or are they different? A bulging disc and a herniated disc can produce the same symptoms. The symptoms consist of pain, limitation of motion, sometimes tingling, and sometimes weakness of certain muscles uh, below the level of the disc bulge or the disc herniation. Those are the symptoms. How common are bulging and herniated discs? There are at least 30 million people in the United States every day who have 
symptoms associated with herniated or bulging discs. Gosh, how unfortunate. That is more people than I thought. Um, I'm also curious to know what segment of the spine bulging and herniated discs occur uh, most often in. In the cervical spine, herniated discs are most common at the C5, C6 level, followed by the C6, 7 level. They are less frequently at C4, 5, and extremely rarely at the C2, C3. In the lumbar spine, the commonest level where the disc herniated is regarded as L5, S1, followed by L4, L5, and sometimes L3, L4. Very rarely you get a herniated disc at L2, 3. And do people rarely get herniated or bulging discs in the thoracic spine? That's a very good question. The thoracic spine, fortunately, is very stable because it's supported by the rib cage. However, you do get a degeneration or absorption of the water content of the nucleus pulposus in the thoracic spine, and this will often lead to herniated discs. But the herniations are not terribly symptomatic. In extremely rare instances, particularly with severe trauma, you could have a large herniation of the disc in the thoracic spine. But if you have a herniated disc in the thoracic spine, it, not, it does not frequently lead to neurological deficit. It might lead to pain, but not neurological deficit. If it does lead to neurological deficit, it really might produce pressure on the intercostal nerves, which emanate the intercostal nerves. These are nerves which come out at each level uh, between each vertebra and go under the ribs. So they might really lead to uh, pain relating to pressure on the intercostal nerve and where the patient might feel pain in the rib cage. In cases of severe trauma, you could have a large disc herniation which in the thoracic spine will compress the cord. And if it compresses the cord, it leads to paralysis or paraplegia affecting the lower extremities. Okay, thank you for that very well said explanation. I'm wondering what the most common causes of bulging or herniated discs are. Are they gradual and age-related, or do people get them from traumatic injuries, from car accidents, for example? The commonest cause is injury. They very rarely occur spontaneously. And the type of injury that causes uh, the disc to herniate would be an extreme flexion or bending forward and twisting of the spine. Very rarely it might occur if, the, if one hyperextends the spine and goes backwards. But the, the most frequently recognized traumatic event leading to a herniated disc 
is a flexion and rotation injury to the low back. Mm -mm -mm. So like a car accident, basically. In a car crash, if uh, the person's body goes forward and backwards and then forwards again, that's a, that's a very common cause of a herniated disc. Mm. In the cervical spine, the cause of a herniated disc is an acute flexion type injury. And this might occur in, in surfers who are surfing and they strike their head uh, down into the mm. sand. Uh, that, that, that would cause a, an injury to the cervical spine. In addition, car accidents are very frequent causes of herniated discs in the cervical spine. Let's move on to another very common problem you see in your older patients. Degenerative disc disease. It's a little self-explanatory, but will you please explain what degenerative disc disease is and basically what happens to our discs? From the age of about 20 onwards, naturally the water content of the nucleus pulposus decreases. And because it decreases, this leads to weakening of the nucleus pulposus and leads to collapse of the disc. When the disc collapses, the fine relationship in the articulation uh, of the spine between succeeding vertebrae is compromised. And in, as a response to this compromise of the articulation, the human body tends to produce what we call osteophytes. Osteophyte means a bony growth, a bony outgrowth. So this is all part of degeneration of the spine. Now, if you are able to x-ray 100 patients with spines, you will find 40 of the 100 will have signs of degeneration in the cervical wow. spine or the lumbar spine. But of those 40, uh, many of them are asymptomatic. And uh, if you're fortunate enough, you can have a degenerative condition uh, and uh, be asymptomatic. The other, uh, the other uh, knowledge we have is that when the spine starts to degenerate, it reaches a level beyond it which it does not degenerate further. So I always tell patients that if they've developed symptoms and they've reached the age of 50, and they've not needed surgery, it's very unlikely that they ever will need surgery. That's great. Now, un un uh, as uh, uncommonly known by people, a lot of people think that degenerative, uh, think that discs that require surgery are in the older age group. In actual fact, the commonest age for which surgery is indicated is between the ages of 25 and 45. So I always tell patients if they get beyond the age of 45 and they've not had surgery, it's extremely unlikely that they ever will need surgery. This doesn't mean that no one will need surgery because there are a lot of people in the older age group who go on to develop a condition called spinal stenosis which is the long-term end result of degenerative disc disease. 
And spinal stenosis is associated with narrowing of the spinal canal and pressure on nerve roots, which leads to symptoms such as pain, loss of motion and interference with function. Mm. What region of the spine does it mostly occur in? In the cervical spine, it's most common between C5 and C6 and C6 and C7. In the thoracic spine, it's very common, usually between the 6th thoracic vertebra and the 12th thoracic vertebra. And that's referred to as thoracic spondylosis. In the lumbar spine, the commonest level of degeneration is L4-5 and L5-S1 and less frequently L3, L4. Is degenerative disc disease hereditary at all? Degenerative disc disease is not regarded as hereditary. However, there are certain occupations that are associated with a high percentage of disc degeneration. And I can name a few. One is firefighters. The other is police officers who do a lot of running and jumping. And then people who do uh, work in the construction industry. Uh, Degenerative disc disease is very common in the legal profession and in the accounting profession affecting the cervical spine. Mm. Because they spend a lot of time on the telephone and they very often don't use headphones. And as a result, keeping the head in one position uh, tends to produce degeneration. Now, is degenerative disc disease preventable? There are certain measures that uh, can be taken to try and prevent the development of degenerative disease. One is to exercise. Exercise is very important. Because the more you exercise any part of the body, the more you lubricate the joint and the, and the less likely uh, are the individual structures uh, to degenerate. Uh, the, um, there's a lot of talk about diet. I'm not certain that diet plays any role. Uh, there are certain things that will definitely accelerate degeneration of the lumbar spine and the one is jogging and jogging has become a very popular sport but uh, whenever we see anyone with degenerative problems affecting the lumbar spine we recommend that they not continue jogging and then weightlifting is another um, occupation which would tend to Uh, increase the possibility of degeneration. But I think whether or not one develops degeneration of the spine is the luck of the draw, and uh, in most instances. Today, we always like to look for a cure, and we always get asked, what can I do to either accelerate healing of a fracture or to... to, uh, prevent certain conditions like degeneration of the spine, but there are no definite answers in that respect. Now let's chat about procedures. What type of procedures treat herniated or bulging discs? When it comes to herniated and bulging discs, the 
there's a protocol. We always like to start from the simple measures uh, and proceed further. The first measure is rest. The second measure is use of anti-inflammatory agents. And the third measure is physical therapy. So what physical therapy aims to achieve is to reduce the inflammation and to strengthen the muscles which support the spine. If that does not work, that the depending on the findings on imaging. Now, the use of imaging of the spine has absolutely revolutionized the treatment of spinal disorders. And by that, I mean particularly MRI examinations. CAT scans have a role, and CAT scans are very important in the management of fractures of the spine because they give better information regarding the condition of the bones. However, if you want to know the condition of the soft tissues such as the spinal cord, the nerve roots, the dura, uh, it is best to uh, look at an MRI. Now, if the MRI shows a significant abnormality such as a large disc bulge measuring at least three to four millimeters or a frank disc herniation, if the patient has failed the initial measures, which as I said earlier, included uh, anti-inflammatory agents, rest, physical therapy, then if there's, there's evidence of irritation of the nerve roots, the use of what we call an epidural block is an excellent procedure to help to relieve the pain. And what an epidural block does is it reduces the swelling and it reduces the inflammation. And because it reduces the swelling, it reduces compression of the nerve root and is very helpful in the management of disc bulges and disc herniations. Is there a treatment or procedure for degenerative disc disease? If the degenerative disc disease produces functional deficit and there's findings on further studies such as imaging and the patient has failed the earlier measures I referred to, you've got to consider recommending surgery. And there are various surgical procedures available uh, in the management of the results of degeneration of the disc. So you're not treating the degeneration itself, but you're treating the end result, the mechanical end result of the degenerative situation. Mm, okay, thank you for clarifying that. Would you be able to name some of these uh, end result treatments uh, and describe them, please? Yes, so the simplest procedure is called a laminotomy. A laminotomy involves removal of a portion of the back of the vertebra at a particular level in order to decompress and allow more room for
for the nerve roots. That's a laminotomy. A laminectomy means complete removal of the whole of the lamina, which is the back of each individual vertebra. Another procedure that we do is called a microdiscectomy. Now, a microdiscectomy means removal of the offending portion of the disc using the assistance of a microscope. In order to do a microdiscectomy, you have to do a laminotomy or sometimes a laminectomy. In most instances, you can perform a microdiscectomy with a laminotomy only, which means in removal of a portion of the lamina. However, in certain instances, such as severe spinal stenosis, which I referred to earlier, uh, in order to appropriately decompress the nerve roots, you need to do what we call a laminectomy. The uh, other procedures that we are performed for degenerative disc end, end stage uh, occurrences are a fusion. Now, a fusion involves welding vertebrae together. And in order to make this happen, one has to approach the disc space. You need to remove the whole disc and you need to roughen up the end plate of each vertebra, which I referred to earlier, the inferior end plate of the vertebra above and the superior end plate of the vertebra below. You then need to insert either a device, uh, which you call a cage, or you need to insert a bone graft, which is either taken from the individual or taken from a bone bank. Or these days we have a lot of artificial uh, bone grafts, which form the basic architecture for a fusion. And the fusion is done from the front, which we call an anterior fusion, or it is done from behind, which we call a posterior fusion. And very often we have to do what's called a 360 degree fusion, which is a fusion from the front and the back. And in the old days, this used to be performed in stages. Today we do it in one sitting. The patient is uh, supine. Uh, we have what we call an approach surgeon. Usually we have a general surgeon who exposes the front of the spine because there are very vital structures in the front of the spine. I'm just going to go over these treatments and we can move on to the last question. The first procedure you discussed is a laminotomy, which is basically a removal of a portion of the lamina, which is the back part of the vertebrae. And we do this to decompress and allow more room for the nerve roots. On the other hand, we have the laminectomies, which are, are the complete removal of the entire lamina of that vertebrae. So laminotomy is a removal of a portion of the lamina. Laminectomy is the removal of the entire lamina of that specific vertebrae. Uh, 
you talked about microdiscectomies, which are the removal of the offending portion of the disc, uh, using the assistance of a microscope to do that. And you normally have to do a, either a laminotomy or sometimes a laminectomy to um, perform a microdiscectomy. The last procedure you spoke about is called a fusion, and that involves welding vertebrae together. And you need to remove the whole disc um, to, quote, roughen up the end plate, unquote, of each vertebrae um, above and below the disc. And then insert a cage and a bone graft. It's usually done from the front. Very complex procedures, but uh, thank you for uh, explaining them so well and so thoroughly. Okay, now we'll move on to the last question of the interview. What is your favorite procedure to do and why? For example, is it because you are skilled at performing this procedure? Or is it because the procedure or treatment has a high success rate? At my stage of my career, and knowing that the results of surgical treatment never produce a perfect result, I always tell my patients, surgery may be successful, but I compare them to an automobile that's had a wreck and it gets repaired in the body shop, but it never looks like it was when it came out of the factory. So if I can relieve the patient's symptoms with conservative treatment, I feel based upon my experience, the use of epidural blocks in patients who failed all other conservative measures has been extremely beneficial. And uh, I feel if I can relieve a patient's symptoms with the treatment measures I recommend without them undergoing surgery, then I'm very happy. Dr. Brooks, what a fabulous interview. You're so informative, detailed, and clear. So I just can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Thank you again for joining me. It's been my pleasure. I hope that uh, the answers I've provided will be a benefit to people who are not familiar with uh, the intricacies of the human body. And uh, I have to tell you, I certainly did enjoy uh, participating in this program. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Just wanted to let you know that Human Body Fundamentals has an Instagram profile and a LinkedIn page. We post this same educational content covering the topic of the week every day for that week. And you can find us through our name, Human Body Fundamentals. Thanks so much and hope to see you next week.